Please stand for reading God's word. First Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of God. Lament and rejoicing. The next two days mark the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre that Jared alluded to earlier, an event that desecrated the thriving Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa known as Black Wall Street. In about 18 hours on May 31st and June 1st, 35 blocks and a legacy of generations was destroyed. Tomorrow is Memorial Day, the day when the United States honors and mourns the men and women who died while serving in the military, and many have sacrificed much for this country. It's a day to grieve and mourn for those lost. And yet, today we commission Anna Ketchum to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to Wales. We're going to close our service today with a commissioning ceremony and I guess her mission, she flies out tomorrow. Today is a day for lament and for rejoicing. And it's important to name the reality that we're not all in the same place. We can't expect each other to be in the same place, but we do make room in our minds and our hearts for our brothers and sisters who are in different places than we are. In fact, that's the way the Christian life always is. We're mourning over sin, we're mourning over the brokenness in our own hearts, and we're mourning over the brokenness in the world, and yet we're rejoicing because of the hope we have in Jesus, hope that transcends even our darkest hour. We rejoice because we believe what the psalmist says in Psalm 130, that, excuse me, Psalm 30, that weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning. What Peter is calling us to today is to a deep, resilient joy that transcends even the most grievous trial. He's calling us to bless God through trials. Now I want to start by looking at the joy that Peter calls us to. Look with me at verse 8 printed there in your bulletin. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter is saying, listen, you never had the chance to meet Jesus. And yet, you've committed your entire lives to follow him. You have laid down your lives as a sacrifice because of what you just heard about him. The good news was preached to you and you believed it and it changed everything for you. You found freedom and peace and acceptance. And even now you don't see him in the flesh, but you believe he exists and that he's sitting on a throne and that he's coming back to make all things new. And so you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What he's saying is words are inadequate to express the joy that you have in Christ. It's a heavenly, a glorious joy that exceeds any joy you have, you have toward anything on earth. Now, now, Peter has seen the glorified Christ. He was on that mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured, when he shone as bright as lightning, and Moses and Elijah came and talked with him about his looming death. He was there when the cloud overshadowed them, and God the Father spoke, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Peter was there. Peter saw the resurrected Christ. He ate breakfast with him. Peter saw Jesus ascend into heaven and he stood there looking into the clouds when an angel came and said, he's going to come back the same way you saw him go. Peter has seen Jesus and yet he commends these saints because they haven't seen the Lord in the flesh and yet they love Jesus and they trust Jesus. They have this inexhaustible joy that they cannot put into words. Do you? I think you do. Because if you're like me, you haven't really, you haven't seen him, but but you've seen him. And I want to pause here just to say that sometimes it's hard to see Jesus. Sometimes the face of Jesus seems obscure. Sometimes we question whether or not we've really seen him. Sometimes we wonder if he's really around. Do you ever feel that way? When Peter writes... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. That may feel foreign to his readers. Verse 6 tells us they have been grieved by various trials, and those trials feel like fire. It may feel foreign to have joy in the midst of trials. It may feel foreign to bless God in the midst of the fire. You ever feel that way? I'm so glad y'all talking back to me. It's so helpful. It's so helpful. Y'all even know what it's like. It's so good to preach when people are talking back. I'll just tell you that. I want to spend some time naming the fire in light of our circumstances today, church. I'm just talking about stuff that I've just heard happen within our people, people that, that are part of Christ Community Church, either afar or near. When I'm beaten and thrown out of my house for professing Christ, how can I bless God? When I'm taken advantage of because my family and my friends know that I'm a Christian, how can I bless God? When my son's classmate throws dirt and water on him and the teacher doesn't see or doesn't care, how can I bless God? When I get passed over for a job that I'm qualified for and that I really want, how can I bless God? 
When I give my time and my talent and my money and my life to meet a need and all I get back is pain, how can I bless God? I'm going to take it to Tulsa. When my family is forced from our home because of racist vigilantes, how can I bless God? When my city is burned to the ground because of racism, how can I bless God? Now, Peter is not naive as he speaks about the various trials. After the transfiguration, Peter saw the glorious Son of God hung to die on a criminal's cross. Peter likely was there and watched Stephen be killed at the hands of religious vigilantes. He saw the aftermath of a people scattered from their homes and arrested in jail for no reason other than their belief in Jesus. He watched injustice thrive while a complicit government turned its face away from the suffering. Peter is not naive about the trials facing his brothers and his sisters across the world. Yet he blesses God. Yet he blesses God. Yet, in spite of it all, he blesses God. How can he bless God? How can he rejoice? Not only that, how can his readers rejoice? Notice, Paul is, Peter doesn't call them to rejoice like Paul does in Philippians. He says, you rejoice. They're already doing it. They're expressing their hope in their present lives lived. He commends them for rejoicing. Their present experience in the midst of the fire is their rejoicing. How is that possible? How do our ancestors in the faith teach us about, teach us to think about trials in our lives? I want to make a few observations and I want to sit down because I, I want to make sure we have time for this commissioning at the end. But I want to make some observations. Point number one, we don't look for trials, family. We're not a people who look for trials. Look with me at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice that Peter writes, if necessary. Now, ideally, we could seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which also means his, his justice, and people would like us and let us live a quiet life. Ideally, we would live quietly and take care of our business and work with our hands and life would be peaceful. Ideally, we could love people and take care of people and open our mouths for the mute and seek justice and try to create communities of peace. And that would just happen. Jesus even calls us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And that word temptation is the same word we have here for trials. Lead us not into trials. Lead us not into temptation. Jesus calls us to pray that we won't have trials. But on this side of Jesus' second coming, Jesus promises that in this world we will have tribulation. Notice, Peter's readers have been grieved. They didn't grieve themselves with trials, but they do have them. Now, trials can be the result of sin in the world. It can be the result of sin in my heart. It can be the result of sin in somebody else's heart. And it could be spiritual attack. Now, we need to discern where the trial is coming from and walk by faith in the midst of it. If the trial is coming because of sin or chaos in the world, then we work with wisdom to try to bring peace. 
If the trial is coming because of sin in my heart, I don't blame the devil. Did you catch that? If I have a trial that's coming because of sin in my own heart, I don't blame the devil or anybody else. I confess it. I repent. I seek to bring restitution. And I walk by faith, trusting myself to the goodness and mercy of God. If the trial is coming because of sin in somebody else's heart, then there may be an opportunity for loving rebuke, or there may be an opportunity for overlooking an offense, or there may be an opportunity for, for, for more extensive confrontation. If the trial is coming because of a spiritual attack like Job or Jesus in the wilderness, then I go to the Word of God and I pray and I seek counsel from a trusted pastor or a wise mentor. Sometimes we need help to discern where the trial is coming from, and often there may be multiple reasons for the trial. The point is, we don't go looking for trials, but we have them. And the second point is that God uses trials to forge our faith. He uses trials to forge our faith. Look back with me in verse 7. You have these trials, been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that praise and glory and honor at the end, but I want to talk about the tested genuineness of your faith. See, trials prove the authenticity of our faith, and trials make our faith authentic. Trials prove the authenticity of our faith, and they make our faith authentic. Let's talk about the first one. Trials prove the authenticity of our faith. Jesus told a famous parable about a farmer who went out to sow some seed. As he threw seed, some fell on a path, some fell among rocks, some fell among weeds, some fell on good soil. And the, the seed that fell among the rocks was interesting because it, 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 because of, because of, it, because of the, the, the rocks, the roots couldn't grow very deep. They let out some roots. They couldn't grow very deep. So, so the plant sprung up quickly. But when the sun came out, and you know about the sun, the sun is supposed to cause the plant to grow. But because it didn't have any roots, it caused the plant to wither. The sun beat down on the plant, and they withered instead because they didn't have deep roots. The heat of trials has a way of testing the root system of our faith. When life is good, faith is easy. It's easy to trust God when life is good. But if we walk with God long enough, what happens, the normal course of the Christian life, the normal course of the Christian life is what John Stott calls, it's the season of hard knocks. It says that, that when trials come, our faith is tested and trials reveal whether we're trusting in God or trusting in ourselves. They prove the authenticity of our faith. But as the parable of the sower alluded to, they also make our faith authentic. Trials have a way of removing our dependence on everything that can be shaken. You ever notice that? If we're trusting in a car and that car gets stolen, then we know we can't find ultimate satisfaction in that car. If I'm trusting in a home and that home gets broken into, I know I can't find my ultimate satisfaction in that, car, in that home. If I'm trusting in some person and that person lets me down, I'm reminded that they may not always be faithful, but there's somebody who is, who has, who, who, in whom I can put my hope, and he will always have steadfast love and faithfulness. Trials have a way of removing our dependence on everything else that can be shaken. 
And God is a merciful and compassionate God who uses every single trial in our lives to increase, refine, and deepen our trust in him. Because he knows, he knows that we will only find true satisfaction and joy when we are leaning on his everlasting arms. He is not satisfied to let us depend on anything else but himself. So he is capable able and willing to use every single trial to remind us that he is the source of ultimate joy and peace and satisfaction. It's only found in him. So point number one, we don't seek trials. Point number two, God uses trials to forge our faith. Point number three, trials don't mean that God has left you. I think we need to hear this today. Trials don't mean that God has left you. Look with me at verse 5. He's talking about those who are in Christ, and he says they are those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that word guard is a military term, saying you are being protected. You are being watched. You are being cared for. At every moment of every day, God is at work caring for you, guarding you, protecting you. And it's just through faith. It's not because you deserve it. In fact, because you admit that you haven't deserved it. Faith is just receiving the reality that I can't do this life on my own. And he says that if you just humbly depend on me, then guess what? All of my power is released to guard you from me. To guard you and protect you from my redemption. To help you to endure. To help you to stay faithful. To help you to stay focused. To help you to trust me. Trials Train us to remember that all of life, in the good seasons and in the bad seasons, all of life is meant to be lived in dependence upon God. And God's power is poured out as you simply trust him through trials. Everything you face, if you, just, if you walk into it trusting Jesus, saying, Abba, Father, thank you. Every trial is a trial of faith. An opportunity to grow in dependence on God. Trials don't mean God has left you. But the fourth point, I think, is the most beautiful point, which is this. The trials that we face in this life do not compare to the surpassing greatness of the inheritance brought to us by the mercy of God. You can name any trial, and it will not compare. I'm not trying to be trite. It will not compare to the surpassing greatness of the inheritance brought to us by the mercy of God. I want to talk about inheritance. Now, inheritance connotes family. Everybody look at your neighbor and say we're family. And say amen. We are family. We're family. Now, we know Peter's talking about family. 
not just because of the word inheritance, because of the familiar language he's using in this text. I want to go back to verse 3. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter emphasizes the fact that God the Father is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This would remind Peter's listeners and us of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. He said, our Father in heaven. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, our Father, he's telling them something about their relationship with God the Father, with God the Son, and with one another. Jesus says that God, the, God is the Father of all his disciples. This means that every need they have will be met by an all-seeing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-just God. This means that they have the protection of an invincible, almighty, ever-capable, good-working God. This means they have the steadfast love of a creative, merciful, gracious, faithful God. To say that God is our Father means that nothing can come against us that God won't use for our good. Nothing. By saying God is our Father, Jesus is saying that he is our older brother. Now listen to this. In the day and age that Peter is talking, when he's writing... The older brother, oldest brother, had some responsibilities. In the Old Testament, the older brother was given a double inheritance. They're given twice as much as anybody else in the family. Why? They were given that because they had a responsibility. And that responsibility was to provide for their siblings, to pay the debts of their siblings, to fight the battles of their siblings, to cover the shame of their siblings. To secure the future of their siblings. Now, if Jesus is our older brother, that means that he provides a place for us. He pays the debts that we owe. He fights the battles we get ourselves into. He covers our shame. He secures our future. When Jesus says, our Father in heaven, he's saying, I'm your older brother, I got you. But not only is he saying that God is our Father and that he's our older brother, but he's saying that we are family. We belong to each other. We take care of each other. We don't regard each other by the world's standards because we know each other deeper than the world knows us. We lament together and we laugh together. We work together and we worship together. We reprove each other for sin and we remind each other of the gospel. We encourage each other in our strength and we help each other in our weakness because we are family. When Peter says father, he's talking about family. We also know Peter's talking about family because he says that God has caused us to be born again. Everybody say born again. Born is a family term. We get this word from Jesus. Remember that story in John chapter 3? When Jesus, uh, Nicodemus, the, 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 the ruler of the Jews, comes to see Jesus, this, this itinerant teaching teacher, traveling teacher, because he's seen the miracles Jesus has done and he knows that God is with him, Jesus knows Nicodemus better than Nicodemus knows himself. So he says to him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's where Peter gets this word. Jesus says being born again is the only way to have life with God. He says that to have life with God, you have to be in God's family. Being in God's family is the only way to experience the righteousness and peace and joy of the kingdom of God. Now, we already said we're family. We want to go a little bit deeper. Because all of us were born into the family of man. We're all born into a family. You have a mother and a father, and you inherited. We're going to come back to that. You inherited some of who they are. 
You might have your mother's eyes and your daddy's ears and your grandfather's chin. You inherited some of their traits, but you also inherited their nature. They have a sin nature they passed on to you. And this sin nature makes you inclined to think you are the center of your life, you're the center of your universe. The world is supposed to make you happy. You don't have to teach kids to sin. I can do bad all by myself. This is why David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. You were born into sin. You're a sinner not because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That's all of our states outside of Jesus. So Jesus says, if you want to have life with God, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born of the Spirit of God. You've got to be cleansed of your sin by the Spirit of God. You don't get life with God because your mother had life with God or because your father had life with God. You have to be born again. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He says, here's how God loves sinners like you and me. He gave his only Son. Being a son means he shares in all of his father's attributes. Jesus is the son of God. He's one with the father. He's the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so he has no sin. And he died to take the punishment we deserve because of our sin. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And he ascended into heaven and sat down on a seat of authority. And he's coming back to make all things new. And he says, whoever just believes in him will have life with him forever. We are born again By faith. Just by trusting in Jesus. Just by confessing that I'm a sinner who needs forgiveness. And Jesus is the Lord who died to forgive me and give me life. In other words, you just receive God's gift of grace. That's how you're born again. Listen, if you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus as your boss, as the one who died to rescue you from your sin, you can do that today. In your heart, just ask Jesus to be your boss and you'll receive forgiveness. You'll be cleansed of your sin. You'll be born again. And Peter here says that we're born again, and we're born again to a living hope. Because Jesus died from the dead, rose from the dead, we can be confident that we have life with God now, and when he returns to renew all things, we will rise with him. We will rise with him to live with him forever. So he's talking about family. Everybody say family. And this is the most most beautiful of the beautiful. I told you we're going to come back to this word inheritance. Everybody say inheritance. Look at verse 4. We're born to a living hope. We're born to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who's Peter talking to? He's talking to people just like us, been born again. And he says, he says, you're going to have an inheritance. What's an inheritance? Well, Proverbs 13.22 tells us that an inheritance is what a good father leaves to his children. An inheritance is often money or property that a parent leaves to an heir. And what Peter tells us here is that just because of our faith, just because you said no to sin and yes to Jesus, Just because you trusted that he's the Lord who died for you. Just because of your faith. Just because you trust in Christ. God has promised us an inheritance. And and listen to how he describes that inheritance. He says it is imperishable. Imperishable means it can't be destroyed. 
Listen, arsonists can't touch our inheritance. Floods and ice storms can't touch our inheritance. Tornadoes can't wipe out our inheritance. Death has no bearing on our inheritance. Look at the next word, undefiled. Our inheritance cannot be corrupted. It cannot be contaminated. It cannot be vandalized. There is no way to ruin this inheritance. You can't ruin your inheritance. Sin has no bearing on our inheritance. It is unfading. It does not deteriorate. Our inheritance does not and cannot lose its brilliance. The luster of our inheritance never fails, never fades. In other words, time has no bearing on our inheritance. Death can't touch it. Sin can't touch it. Time can't touch it. This is the inheritance that God has promised to you. It is kept in heaven for you. I like how New Testament scholar Doug Harink says when he says, this is not a statement about where the inheritance is located. It is a statement about its divine origin and quality. God's eternal life, glory, and reign is itself our inheritance. God has promised to all who are in Christ, all who simply surrender to Jesus, all who simply trust in him, an eternal life, an eternal glory, an eternal reign. And we get it just by faith, just by trusting. And it gets better. Because when Christ is revealed, our faith, if we didn't do anything to earn, will result in our sharing in Christ's glory. Look at, look at verse 7. It, says it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what's crazy about this? Peter's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about you. That when Christ returns, just because we trust in Christ, praise and glory and honor is what we're going to experience that we get to throw back on Jesus. The outcome of our faith the telos, the, the purpose, the aim of our faith is the salvation of our souls, which includes more than just being free from, from death and from sin. But it means that we, we, we get what Jesus deserves. Go read Romans 8. Creation groans, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. If we were to see each other as we will be, C.S. Lewis says we would be tempted to worship each other. Do we deserve that? Not when I look at my heart. But that's the gift of grace. That's our inheritance. 
just by grace. So why not bless God in the midst of our trial? Why not rejoice in God in the midst of our suffering? I want to close with one more word from scholar Harink. He's talking about this text. He says, Jesus confronted the ruling powers of the day and conquered them, not by their own violent means, but by allowing himself to suffer and be killed by them. In so doing, he gave himself into the hands of the Father. Trusting that the Father would deliver him, he revealed in that way that he was the divine Son of God. That was his time of trial, and it is the church's as well. And he quotes 1 Peter 4, 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same intention. He, he goes on to say that that kind of faith participates in the very reality of Jesus Christ and so too shares in the praise and glory and honor that is due to him when he is apocalypse to the world. Listen to this. Indeed, the church's witness to Jesus Christ by that kind of authentic faith is itself, in some measure, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, an intrusion of the messianic era into the time of the world. What in the world does he say? He's saying that when we go through trials and when we suffer injustice, when we deal with difficulties in our life, as we bless God through them, as we rejoice in the midst of them, what the world gets to see is the unveiling of Jesus Christ right in front of their face. It's an intrusion of Jesus into the world. It's heaven meeting earth. It's eternity breaking into time. It's life conquering death. Every time we suffer, every time we face trials, Every time we lament and grieve trials with hope that Jesus is going to renew the cosmos, we're showing the world what God is like. Heaven is breaking into earth. Church, I know some of what you're going through. I don't know everything you're going through. But because Jesus is risen from the dead, we have the opportunity to bless God in the midst of every trial. And as we do that, we show each other that Jesus is alive and he's well. Are you going to do it perfectly? No, that's why it's faith, because I can't do it all perfectly. If you fail that at this week, just don't fret about it. Just trust Jesus. Just trust him. Just just, just lean into his arms. Just receive his mercy and receive his grace. And heaven will break into earth by the power of Jesus Christ. Right? Let's go to the Lord. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, not only is your grace sufficient, it is immeasurably more, immeasurably more than we deserve. And and I just pray that you would help us to, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That 
moment by moment and minute by minute and year after year, we would grow deeper into the knowledge of this grace that is ours, of the inheritance that you promised to us in your son. I thank you, God, that you have promised to walk with us. You've given us a family to walk with us through some of the most grievous trials. And we don't have to face them without hope. Because, Jesus, you've gone before us in your first fruits of the new creation. Help my brothers and sisters, God, today to trust you again where they've lost hope to rekindle it. Where they've forgotten faith to find it. For your glory and your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name.